0: What if I told you that you could help solve the hospitality recruitment crisis with just £10? You'd say, shut up, take my money, wouldn't you? Well, that's exactly what a new initiative called Hospitality Rising is going to do. Between now and May the 12th, we are raising £5 million to fund the biggest hospitality recruitment advertising campaign that the UK and beyond has ever seen. We want to double the amount of people who would consider working in hospitality. Think Army be the best, but for hospitality. All we need from you is £10 per employee that you have in your business and together we can stop this recruitment crisis forever. Go to hospitalityrising.org now to find out how you can help today and don't forget to tell your HR team and your CEO. Supersonic!
1: Supersonic! 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 Supersonic!
0: Supersonic!
1: Supersonic! Supersonic
0: Supersonic From Supersonic Inc This is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast The rocket fuel podcast for food, drink and hospitality businesses everywhere Listen up, tell all your friends and share with your colleagues Every single episode is packed full of tips, tricks and advice On how you can make your brand Boom Hello, it's
1: Adam here from StoreKit. We're the easy mobile ordering system for ambitious operators. We love Mark so much that for podcast listeners, we've got a very special deal. If you head to storekit.com forward slash demo and quote supersonic in the form, you can get £50 donated to a hospitality charity of your choice. All you need to do is complete the demo and be a real business. So, if you're experiencing trouble finding staff, if you want to boost premium orders, or if you just want to manage an outdoor area with the easiest possible system you can find, head to Storkit right now and check it out.
0: A creative agency for the hospitality sector, Saved by Robots create compelling brands and memorable experiences through great design and engaging storytelling. From Scottish restaurant of the year Sugar Boat to TipJar, Jar, the digital tipping platform that's taken over the world, Saved by Robots excel at bringing ideas to life. As well as developing new concepts and refreshing existing brands, the robots provide outsourced graphic design to help multi-site operators grow with confidence. Check out their work and get in touch at savedbyrobots.com So you lucky duckies, we've got a bonus episode for you this week and it is with the northern restaurant and bar legend that is Tom Hetherington. Tom and I caught up very quickly to squeeze in a podcast so we could get to know him a bit better but also promote the northern restaurant and bar show that's going to be going on week commencing the 14th of March. Make sure you check out Everything about it. There's a headline speaker that you can go along to through Eventbrite, which is Nick Jones of Soho House fame. Also, Get yourself up to Manchester, go and check out things outside of London if you're in London or indeed if you're north of the border, get yourself down to Manchester as well. Check out what's going on there, it's the most buzzy and thriving restaurant scene. That little enclave of the north is actually leading the UK if you read all of the guides and all of the award books that are out at the moment. Get down to Manchester, go and see Tom. Come and say hello to everyone there and get yourself out your comfort zone and really unite with your brothers and sisters in the middle of the country. Here's Tom. So it gives me the most Northern powerhouse pleasure ever to introduce my next guest, who is the CEO of the Northern Restaurant and Bar Show, and that is Mr. Tom Hetherington. Hello.
1: Hello to you, Mark. How are you?
0: <laughs> Not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, it's been a, a crazy Monday already, I, I take it. You're having a, a crazy one on the run-up to the show?
1: Yeah, it's um, overstimulating, to uh, to say the least. It's pretty full-on. We're, we're three weeks out now. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, thanks to our friend COVID, this is going to be the first NRB, which has run now for, for three years um and we've got a lot of new elements a lot of things happening um Omicron has rather messed with our timeline so it does feel a little like we're trying to do twice as much as normal in half as much time as as normal but um if nothing else it's kind of character building you know it makes you feel alive you you feel the kind of thrill of live events again
0: yeah brilliant and then when was the last live event that you actually went to or did anything or anything like that
1: well, we we've got more hands-on experience uh, than that actually, because we the other half of the business we run uh, two contemporary art fairs mm-hmm. uh, that are the largest contemporary art fairs outside of London, and as with NRB Northern Restaurant and Bar, we we missed being able to run those through COVID, but they normally take place in autumn, and oh. we were actually able to run Manchester Art Fair in in November last year, um, just as there was that kind of pre pre Omicron lull Mm. and and that was really the first live event that we'd been able to do for almost two years or the first certainly the first kind of major mass event um which was uh exhilarating and and nerve-wracking but the, the whole event went off beautifully i think we we matched our all-time record in terms of our visitor numbers and attendance and actually the sales of the art which for us is the the most important kind of measure of success was 30 percent up on our all-time 15-year record wow. um which is kind of i think i like to think it's testament to the job my team of done the marketing and the content and the way we curated it but also undoubtedly there was some kind of pent-up demand people wanted to get back to live events they wanted to you know they wanted to experience things again they wanted that kind of visceral pleasure of being out in an environment that someone else has created that they that they enjoy that they get a kick out of
0: yeah you'd maybe think as well people were sort of wanting to change up the surroundings you know having been in the house you know or whatever in the flat or wherever they were for two years they might just be hankering after a new piece of art or something new to look at just to freshen up the surroundings as well.
1: Yeah, I think so, and I, I think we'll we'll see that echo across every every industry, really, mm-hmm. every area of society, not least not least hospitality um, as well. Although I think we're all seeing a, a really significant kind of consumer appetite, consumer demand to get back out there to get into restaurants and bars and pubs and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that that we all, as the industry, are resting on our Laurels, you know, we, we know the world has, has changed. We know that people maybe want something fresh, something new, something exciting. So I, I think one of the, what might have been a counter-intuitive uh, thing is, is we've looked around Manchester and around the north in particular and the amount of new ventures, new concepts, refurbishments, uh, people expanding premises, you know, changing things up, whether it's the menu or the fit-out, whatever, is absolutely massive. Uh, yeah. as, I, as I said before, no one's resting on their laurels at all. You know, mm-hmm. people are coming back and I think the industry wants to really blow them away and show them something special.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things, oh, a couple of bits just to that was, one of the stats I've seen was there's never been as many food, drink, bar, pub, you know, options out there now. You know, actually, it's it's had this, you know, this new lease of life for entrepreneurialism and, and you know, innovation and, and all these kind of things, you know, which I thought was was like really, really interesting. But the thing I don't get, Tom, is so many people are closed right now for refurbishment. And you're like, why didn't you do it
1: when we were closed? <laughs> What's going on? I know. I know. I think everyone wishes that they fixed the roof when the when the sun was shining. You know, there's maybe <laughs> maybe things that we would have all um done differently in retrospect if we'd known exactly how COVID was going to play out. But um yeah, we we are where we are. And I, I certainly think those people who are in, in refurbishment mode, they're they're putting their feet down at the minute. You know they mm. want to they want to crack on because they can see that there's a missed opportunity out there because they can see their competitors, their peers down the road, around the corner, are all round to the gunnels, and I, I think yeah. they all want to kind of get back into that.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right, well, let's go back a bit then. So, how did you end up doing what you're doing? You know, where did this, you know, a sort of love of bars, restaurants, hospitality, art. You know, all these things, uh, where did it all
1: start up? Well, um, that's a story as old as time. Uh, I did a marine biology degree at Liverpool University. Um, So it's not the most well-trodden career path, I I don't think. Mm -hmm. But I'd always liked um, publishing and media journalism, writing. My my dad used to be a a chief sub on a a lot of the kind of national press when there was a proper Fleet Street at the North back in the day. Um, And one of my very... um, Strange claims to fame is that I used to write a column for the Sunday Sport newspapers when I was about 14 or, or 15, which was uh, amazing. I used to have to take the pay slips to school. It was still the era when you used to get paychecks stapled to a, a pay slip when you got your checks. I used to have to take them to school to prove it because uh, none of my friends would believe me. <laughs> but uh, anyway, what you, well, wait a minute
0: though. What, what were the columns? What were you talking about? Were you talking about Hitler was, uh... and, and red buses on the, the moon or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: no, it was uh, it was an amazing facts column. And they they used to use it a bit like they used to use it as a filler. When you laid the columns out, if you kind of had an inch or two space when you laid out the pages, they'd just drop them in. So, Mm. you know, one week you won't get any used. The next week they might use three and you got a nice little paycheck. So uh, yeah, I used to buy loads of secondhand kind of quiz and um, kind of Ripley's believe it or not sort of books, that sort of thing, and rewrite them all into a tabloid uh, style. It was good practice for the the English language, A-level and GCSEs (laughs) that I was doing at the time. But uh, yeah, there you go. Um, so I, I left uh, university and, and needed money, and uh, got a job selling advertising on a on a magazine, which was um, pretty intense. Kind of like Glen, Gary, Glen Ross, a dusty old set of leads, eighty calls a day. If you don't sell in a week, you're out. If you go to the toilet, everyone steals your leads. That wow. that sort of thing. Um, but ABC, it turned out. ABC? I, I, ABC, ABC. always be closing. Exactly, yeah. uh, (laughs) Everyone was talking about kind of funneling and all that sort of thing. Um, But it it turned out I was was pretty good at it. Um, I like it constructive debate, borderline argument, and I was competitive and, and not scared of getting on the phone. So um yeah, that was my first kind of toehold. I then worked for a, a nightclub magazine. It had the wonderful title of World Discotheque Review, which was a fabulous, um, fabulous fun. And around that time I was back in Manchester after university and, and there was that kind of post industrial northern city reblossoming or all kind of renaissance in terms of food and drinks. Some suddenly it was all uh, kind of about cafe society and you know cool new restaurants and cool new bars and I, I just got absolutely swept up in it i found it the most fascinating thing back in the era of dry bar and and mantos and machinaire and uh, atlas and all of these sorts of places bar so they were all just kind of breaking through in the late 90s um so i loved it i ended up running a, a very small publishing company which I, I built up and sold and then friends of my dad's uh, was setting up a website for the restaurant industry. And I'd done a lot of new media and, and kind of tech stuff. I'd always been quite geeky about that. Um, so I I knew about media and publishing. I knew about tech and online, and I was fanatical about restaurants. So the idea of doing a, a kind of restaurant website magazine just seemed like, you know, a match made in heaven. Mm-hmm. So I went to do that. The couple who set it up were called Derek and Edwina Lily. They used to have a, a chain of restaurants called Est, Est Est which was quite big back in the day. And they, they sold it. Um, mm-hmm. And we were all going to be dot com millionaires by Christmas. And, uh, and it, we misjudged it horribly It tanked spectacularly and ate everyone's money and uh, floundered badly for a number of years. Um, but in the end with some new partners that we brought in, we ended up taking it offline and actually turning it back into a, into a paper product. And we launched Restaurant Magazine, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we've all seen the tremendous success that that has gone on to be. Um, but I was the marketing and events director there and and helped to launch that, helped to launch the 50 best restaurants in the world awards and run that for the first couple of years. Um, and weirdly enough, another subscription element, which was tied into the website spun off and, and became fourth, which are now a, you know, enormous, Globe spanning success story, yeah. but really, they they were only done back in the day as a knee jerk panic measure to try and get people to subscribe to our online magazine that no one was particularly interested in. Yeah. So it's, it's funny got, how these things uh, work out.
0: I've got a bit of history with forth. Um so I, I didn't have the pleasure of meeting Edwina, unfortunately, but I met um, amazing woman Derek, right? Did you see?
1: Derek, yeah, yeah. yeah Derek. Has, so, you know. yeah,
0: we, we had a lovely night out with, with him and the lads, Um, you know, sort of early on. We were at a slight kind of celebration for, for Edwin but I ended up uh, working me forth like quite heavily and, and yeah. there's sort a of global brand positioning for the, you know, uh, for around the world. Incredible. And, and all that stuff. Yeah. And they were just lovely people, you know, just... Sam was there, obviously one of the boys, yeah, um, you yeah. know, and then you had Ben Hood, um, you know, sort of running it at the time and, and things like yeah. that. So there, it really was a, a real you know gang, you know, a like minded gang of people that they brought together. Oh, was, you know,
1: uh, they were there yeah, to so take on the fa- world. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, crew sam and um and derek are are lovely and and ben did an unbelievable job of of growing that that business really and some of the other people who were involved in the early days like ian donald who was um ops director and then md of the restaurant group and now is a kind of itinerant um consultant and non-exec for hire um on a variety of restaurant companies i still see him fairly regularly Mm -hmm. for a beer it was a really lovely kind of crew one of those um just a complete, um, happy accident coming together of, of people. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm proud of what we did. I'm proud of 50 best and restaurant magazine in in particular. Um, though I, I can take a very minor bit of credit, you know, for the huge success they've gone on to be, because they, they were sold on and, you know, they're now owned by William Reed, but yeah, that was my, um, my kind of, um, career path today and then they, they relocated Restaurant Magazine down to London because their head office had been based up in um, Manchester and uh, I was a Norman boy and very settled and happy up here never particularly felt the pull to to go to London and uh, had just bought a house back in my hometown and had my first son on the way mm. so I'd been getting itchy feet to run my own business again anyway uh, I'd realized I'm not a particularly good employee uh, I'm much better running my own thing so I took this as fate giving me a kick up the ass to to jump and go mm-hmm. do my own thing again. So so I did. So I left. Um and to, to finish the long story short, I, I ended up um talking to a company down in London called Quantum, who used to run the restaurant show and public and newspaper and various other bits and pieces in this sphere. And they had they had NRB up in Manchester, which was a small show. It was struggling. They didn't really need to know what to do with it, running it from London. And I think they were quite glad to see it off their balance sheet. So mm-hmm. we had a little chat about us acquiring it. Um, And we were able to cut a deal, and that was back in 2004, Um, and we've run NRB now for the last 18 years. Brilliant. And
0: what have you seen since starting it then? Because, you know, the feeling I was getting, I'm with you, brother, and all that stuff, you know, being outside of London and and all the rest of it. So I, I feel it, you know, I notice it, that, you know, a lot of the country's just so focused on the M25 and, and inside the M25. So, you know, how does it feel, you know, in terms of, you know, how, how has it felt over the years growing this, you know, and, and everyone mm. sort of noticing an author a bit more and, and being a little bit more integrated? And it's, has it changed, you know?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good... Um, It's a good question. Obviously, um, if I had to list one of my hobbies, it would be militant northernism. I'm a very (laughs) proud uh, northerner and I quite delight in having a a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about the London-centric world in in which we live. Um, And it does frustrate me that if you stick an exhibition in London, you call it the National Whatever Show and and they're not national. Mm. They're just not. You look at their catchment and it falls off like mad the minute you get up near Birmingham. Um, Really, they're a southern show that happens to be in London uh, and we are just the northern counterpoint to that we really do the midlands all the way up to scotland and particularly around that m62 corridor that's our kind of heartland that liverpool manchester leeds it's kind of center of um of population but when we when we took it on our argument was was very much to people, all the key players in the industry up here He said, look, you know, the show's not very good. And we would say, well, no, it isn't, but we've bought it now, and would we not all benefit from there being a really strong platform in the north of England for all of the people who are doing great things up here for the industry to come together around? Because, frankly, we're not going to get the credit or the time from London. So we can either all moan about it and have a, have a good whinge, which is, is fun, and I'm not averse to that, or we can create some sort of counterbalance we can create something up here that's of our own that we control on our home turf and we can build it up into something really special and and people really got on board with that they really bought into that sentiment they they could see i think looking us in the eyes that we meant it you know we were local lads, and myself and my business partner Andy clayfield this was a real passion for us so they came on board and i think the interesting thing the interesting changing dynamic is that the northern hospitality industry was always much, much, much stronger and more diverse and richer than it was given credit for. But it was my job to bang the drum. And I've spent many, many years telling everyone who listened that the north of England has the greatest hospitality industry the world has ever seen. And what's gratifying, but also slightly, I don't know, it's a really mad thing to deal with, is the fact that over the last particularly five or ten years, it's kind of starting to become true. Mm. You know, I feel like a bit of a Noel Edmonds thing. You know, where if you say something positive enough, then you actually start to change the world around you and mm-hmm. make it make it true. You know, I've been banging on so long, like a like a typical salesperson, like that kid that started off doing 80 calls a day and, you know, telling everyone black is white. I've told everyone how great the, uh, the hospitality industry is up here and um, it is now coming to pass. And I'm being I'm being flippant and and facetious about the fact that I've played any great part in that, but it is immensely gratifying to actually look around now, see things like Long Clume getting its third star, yeah. see the fact that in the National Restaurant Awards, four of the top five are in the North of England, see the fact that in the the Gastro Pubster list, four of the top five are in the North of England. Suddenly, you're looking around you and going this actually is phenomenal. Mm. This is incredible. Um, It's one of those trite phrases that everyone comes out with, but I honestly do not think there has ever been a better time to be in hospitality in the north (laughs) of England the industry has never been stronger, never been richer, never been better. Um, and it just feels it feels like endless. You know, every time you look around a corner, that there's another operator, someone else with talent and passion doing something really fantastic. Um, it's absolutely wonderful. And and to have been banging the drum for so long, it's never felt lonely, but it, it sometimes has felt like, you know, an uphill struggle mm-hmm. over the last 18, 20 years it's just great to be where we are now we're not resting on our laurels not not in a a million years would we do that but i certainly hit that we've i feel that we've hit a kind of beachhead or a tipping point where it's different now Mm -hmm. and it's not going to go back to how it was before you know we're over at least one hurdle and we'll keep on pushing on um we're, we're certainly not going to be complacent but yeah we feel like we've come a long way and it's really gratifying to see the guys doing the great stuff up here getting the credit from national media, from award schemes, from critics, from whoever it might be, um, because they deserve it. Mm. Well, I think there's some great
0: champions, you know, and and people that have really stood out in the last few well, like, you know, your Gary Ushers of the world and things mm. like that. You know, you kinda definitely spiked conversation in terms of, you know, sort of the rock star element and the from nothing to something sort of thing and just the great name and consistency that, that his restaurants have, you know. Um what about Manchester in terms of the Michelin star thing though? Cause Simon was a a good shot for that, wasn't he? Like in the Midland Hotel, was he not looking at that uh, for a little
1: yeah, while? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a complicated um thing that really there was the TV programme that, yeah. that Simon did along with um Aidan Byrne as well, which yeah, I think was called Restaurant Wars, Battle for a, a Michelin Star or, mm. or something like that. Um and obviously, you know, the way it worked out is that neither of them um got a Michelin star. And and Simon is long out of of, of the French now. He's clearly doing incredible things um with the with the rest of his um stable. Mm. But I, I think the interesting thing is that Adam Reed, who's a, a local guy, who was the head chef at the French when Simon had it he stayed on you know that's now his restaurant that's in his name Adam Reed at the French and there's probably a the two most credible uh kind of restaurant award schemes which are which are out there the ones that really matter to chefs so the um Michelin and the Good Food Guide. Mm -hmm. And in the Good Food Guide, they do a top 50 every year. And Adam and the French have got, I think somewhere around 13th, 17th most years, uh, best restaurant in the entire country. So they're Mm -hmm. up there in the teens consistently. Um, Yet there's about 200 restaurants that get Michelin stars in the UK and they haven't given him a star. Mm. Uh, and I think equally, I think he's got four AA rosettes. I think there's only about 17 restaurants in the whole of the UK that have five. Okay. Um, so he's right up there in the AA scheme as well. So in that respect, with Manchester and, and with the French, you maybe have to look and say, you know, a, a Michelin may be the outlier there, because mm. everyone else seems to think what the French is doing is is top-notch, and it is. Yeah, It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I mean, we felt uh, the other day just how important it is, you know, down in Brighton. I mean it's just a sort of microclimate, I suppose, yeah, of, of great restaurants. Yeah, I mean the yeah. good news is um Burnt Orange, uh, which is uh, from the same people that do the coal shed and the salt room and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um they got their Bib Gourmand, which you know, they're only open yeah. a matter of months and stuff. So, you know, that was a real positive step. So yeah, there's still still not one down here yet, you know, but um It has to it, happen. It's yeah. a little
1: hotbed of great Restaurants down in uh, Bristol, isn't it? Uh, uh, sorry, yeah. down in uh, Brighton. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. God, don't say Bristol. That's, that's just trying to be a, a second rate Brighton, I think, isn't it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what, they don't There's do. A restaurants. There's a rivalry. There's a rivalry. I'm very jealous. Whenever I see the critics uh, going off down the M4 to uh, Bristol, they yeah, always yeah, seem yeah. to find a new fantastic restaurant. Yeah, so no, much going on
0: there. No, it's really good. I mean, here you've got um, Stephen Edwards, uh, who's an ex master chef. I mean, he's looking one of the closest right now. To being mm-hmm. able to do it, you know, so fingers crossed, fingers crossed. But yeah, I just, you know, forgot about the buzz and all that. And there was a, a real bit of buzz when the Bib girl ones were getting handed out the other day. You know, everyone was, was really chuffed as well. So yeah, it was it still
1: it still matters. Uh, you know, there's always the debate, there's the snobbishness and then the reverse snobbishness about whether or not Michelin matters. But um I think the simple fact is it it does, you mm. know, whether you, you want it to or not, whether you believe in Michelin or not, whether you agree with Michelin or not, the fact is that it does make a difference. Mm. It it does it does generate conversation. And um, I think you speak to any chef who's got a Michelin star. The impact that it will have on their business, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the, the financials, the footfall, their ability to invest, their ability to be kind of stable and secure, mm-hmm. their ability to attract staff, which, you know, I know is something we're going to come on to later, but that's absolutely crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are very few chefs who've acquired a Michelin star who wouldn't, who wouldn't kind of describe it as, as life changing or, or certainly transformational for their businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't, you can't really make light of that I don't think no. you know that. that is the true fact it has that impact whether we like it or not and um, because of that we, we all have to watch what Michelin do because it changes things
0: yeah and what about the north in, in general then so who's standing out for you you know in terms of like casual dining side of things you know is there anyone that you're seeing from that perspective you're thinking "Oh, they're doing a great job and same kind of in the bar scene as well you know is there any anyone you think's really standing out for just consistently brilliant or doing something yeah
1: I mean obviously I I could talk right across the north but I'm I'm normally based in and around Manchester so that's where um, most of my recent experiences are so there are there are a few names that that stand out for me really. I, I've been a long time fan of the guys at Bunderbus. Amazing. Um, yeah, which is just a, a brilliant concept. Marco and Maya, they're, they're fantastic guys, and they've got this kind of Indian street food, stroke craft beer kind of mashup. They've now got their own brewery in one of their restaurants. They're brewing their own beers, which are which are phenomenal. Um, they just do it so well. They make it look so effortless uh and it's it's so on point you know it's Mm. well priced it looks cool the branding is fantastic it's vegetarian it's good for vegans uh it's eco credentials and sustainability are are fantastic you know it sounds almost box ticky like it's been you know come up with by a branding agency but Mm. it's come out of these two guys passion and it's just so of the moment and so Perfect. Um, I can see those guys rolling out at a rate of knots. And they've got some really good investment. They've got Tom Bing on the board, ex of, of Byron as well. Yeah very ambitious guys I, I think they're going to go um far there's there's other restaurants in manchester um a particular two particular favorites of, of mine actually are erst which is a kind of small plates natural wine sort of concept mm-hmm. up in uh, Ancoats. recently broke into the, the national restaurant uh awards kind of top 100 list it's just a wonderful wonderful place. The chef there, Patrick was a plumber who changed career. Wow. And I swear to God, that guy has a palate. The plates of food that he puts together are just brilliant. I went there quite recently with Simon Rogan and mm-hmm. his team. And, um, you know, we had a fantastic lunch. We, we all thought it was wonderful. Uh, and then there's a little place called the Sparrows in a railway arch, which is kind of, um, Tyrolean Alpine style carbs, lots of spatzle and pasta and pierogi and Pelamina. Um, the simplest place with the simplest menu that you'll ever go to. You're eating plates of food, which are effectively carb and a bit of potato and cottage cheese or a bit of sage and onion, but it's just unbelievable. I don't know how they get so few ingredients to sing like they do, but it is one of the most wonderful restaurants you'll ever, ever go to. I adore it. Um, and then on the bath side, I think the the big one for Manchester is the Schofield, uh, the Schofield brothers coming home with uh, their bar, Schofields. Um, And these two guys, Joe and Dan, they've worked all over the world Mm -hmm. from Leeds to London, down at the Savoy, and then out into Asia where they've kind of run their own bars out there and got in the top 50 bars in the World Awards. They've done books. They've won awards. They've done everything. They are absolutely kind of stellar in terms of their career. But they're both Manchester lads and they've chosen to come home. They've taken a really small site, to do a really really classical grown up cocktail bar but it feels clubby and comfortable and friendly um, and and again it's that thing about simplicity done well, there's no bells there's no whistles, there's no concept, there's no theatre, it's just a little bar with great service making the best cocktails you'll ever have in your life and it's a gem it's just an absolute nailed on gem and I, I adore it and I spend much too much time there.
0: <laughs> well it's really cool what you were saying um, earlier on just about uh, a nice pun. I don't know if it was intended about the sparrows' food singing, which I thought was good. But and what about <laughs> Ernst? Then is it just to double check. Ernst. Uh, e R S T. E R S T. Yeah, Erst uh, Ernst. Yeah, fabulous cool. place. No, I'll, I'll uh, put all got, these in the show. Uh, a review... notes, you know?
1: Yeah, it's got a review from Jay Rayner, a review from Marina Marina O'Loughlin back cool. in the day as well. But um, it's one of those industry places. A lot of industry people go there, yeah. um, particularly because – this is so important if, you, if you're in this industry. They're actually open from a Tuesday uh, lunchtime and dinner. Um, and we all know in the hospitality industry, if you take a Monday, Tuesday off, you normally find that there's almost nowhere that you want to go and eat food. So mm. to have a serious kind of craft-led, chef-led, independent place that's open for a Tuesday lunchtime is a, is a little slice of joy, really. I, I urge everyone who's in Manchester on a Tuesday to get themselves in there.
0: Nice. So just going back then, in terms of, you and you know working at, in and running holding media, where mm-hmm. where did the name for that come from and, and all that sort of background? Uh,
1: do you know what it's um it's a it's a little personal story which might make it a bit dull actually. I okay. feel like there should be some big kind of branding thing behind it, <laughs> but um. My uh, my granddad was Jack Holden, um, uh, my maternal granddad, and he was uh, he was an absolutely incredible guy. He was a maths teacher, head of maths at the, the local grammar, and then the local comprehensive school where my parents went, and I went, and my own kids have um, gone. But he did all sorts of other stuff as well. He played for Glossop North End, my local team, won a league and cup double when they were a decent team back in the the day. He refereed a schoolboys football final down at Wembley. He used to do the summarising for BBC. Radio Lancashire for all the kind of games up there. Uh, He ran Glossop School Brass Band and turned them into absolute world beaters. They used to tour all over the world and release albums and annihilate all these kind of adult bands just as a load of school kids from a local comprehensive he was just an amazing guy and and being back in my hometown now Gloucester if i if i meet anyone of a certain age 50s 60s um and mention my granddad's name they all go misty eyed and they're like oh Jack Holden you know what a guy he was he's left this huge imprint on the on the town and on the people here and he was such a force for good and he sadly died um just before i set the company up actually and uh i just thought he was an amazing guy and my, my dad set up his own business uh, as well back in the day and uh I I remember a lot of people thought he was mad he was leaving journalism to to set up a business doing kind of high-end bespoke furniture in the middle of the the 80s recession with no training no business training and my granddad jack holden was one of the few people who said to him listen i i don't really understand what you're doing or why you're doing it but i've got you back mm. and if you need a bit of investment or anything i'll help you out or be there and I thought that sentiment was just lovely, so I kind of wanted to honour his name a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I just called it Holder Media, purely on that little kind of personal family whim. That's nice, and something to keep you going as well, I you know? So. I think I, I think of him, you know, he feels a little bit like he's there in the background, yeah. which is a lovely thing.
0: Yeah, because I know what it's like running a business, and it can get lonely, and there can be times where you've got to dig deep and, and all that, you know, and have oh, yes. something like that. You know, I'm feel exactly the same with my grandfather, you know, just that, you know, little angel on your shoulder just going, come on, yeah. you know, do it, son, go for it, is, is always a yeah. good thing. So yeah. So then I was really curious to know like what does a typical sort of week look like for you? Cause you're involved I know there'll be no such thing as, but even just picking one from the fact that you're involved in so much that you're you know it's, yeah. it's just really interesting to find out how you handle it and you're doing your running you're into the football you're building great kitchens yeah. you know you've got a lot going yeah. on you know so it'd be really interesting yeah. for, and inspiring for other people to know how you do it
1: too too much um possibly <laughs> so is there a, is there a typical week the answer is no um because we we do these big annual exhibitions our our cycle is is annual you know I, I could tell you what um what a typical annual cycle might be like but some people in different businesses you have a you have a daily cycle or a weekly cycle or whatever but we're you know we're almost on the we're almost on kind of glacial timescales there we're looking at every year that's when uh when our clock turns so it's hard to say what a typical week would be but in terms of the structure of the business and and what i do and how i do it i think what it really comes down to is the the team of people that I work with, um, we're very lucky, we're a very, very small team, almost like a, like a family. Uh, we haven't gained or lost a member of staff since 2011. Wow. Uh, we, we really are a little kind of unit and everyone, they're so competent, they work so hard, there's such kind of trust between us Um, that what it means is it actually gives me quite a lot of freedom. I'm not massively involved in the day-to-day nuts and bolts of the business. Um, Andy does the sales brilliantly. Um, Claire and Liam on the marketing team run that wonderfully. Lindsay and Tracy on Ops, uh, absolutely on top of that. They've been doing it for decades. Joe looks after the accounts and everything else. So they they kind of take care of that. And although I have a bit of a kind of top-down influence and input and feed in ideas and inspiration and, contacts and all the rest of it really the the machine of nrb kind of runs beautifully probably the less that i'm involved in it you know i just tend to get in the way a little bit so i leave them to crack on and that that does give me the freedom and bandwidth to do all sorts of interesting things Um, and i think what we what we realized 10 years ago is that we could drive the show commercially as hard as we wanted but ultimately we were going to be dictated to by the size and the the health, the success of the northern hospitality industry. Mm. If the industry was having a terrible time, our show would shrink. Yeah. And if the industry was booming, then even if we were idiots, our show would get bigger. You know, the, the two are inextricably linked. Mm. So we realized that there was a value in me almost – feeding into that altruistic long game and just saying, listen, if there's anything we can do for the greater good of Northern hospitality, that is going to pay back around. Yeah. We don't need to be able to illustrate it on a PNL or, you know, I, I can't tell you at the start of the week, what benefit we're going to get from the meetings I have or the projects that I'm involved in. But if you try and be a force for good, you just get out and you get involved. You make the industry better. You make the industry stronger. It It's amazing, amazing the ways that it does come back round to you Mm -hmm. um i wish karma was a slightly shorter game rather than a longer game but it does pay it it does pay back around it absolutely does so i i almost i suppose i've kind of got a position a self-fulfilling position where because you get involved in everything in Northern hospitality, you put your hand up, you put your weight behind it, you use your voice, you use the power of NRB, whether it's a council initiative or something around skills or training or a charity or whether you're helping London operators find their feet in the north of England or whatever it might be, you you just get involved and you do it. And the more that you're seen as the guy involved in all the food and drink stuff in the north of England, then the more anyone with a food and drink thing in the north of England finds their way to you or gets Mm. told that they need to talk to you And it's not that we try to control it all or monetize it all or anything like that. We kind of try and just act as a conduit. It's like soft diplomacy, really. You just kind of go, well, okay, all right, that's a good idea, but you need to talk to these guys or, right, you're interested in this. I know exactly who I need to connect you up with. or And you just feed everyone through to each other and you make stuff happen Mm -hmm. um and i always joke about this it's like a slightly less sinister version of that mafia adage always have everyone forever in your debt Um, you know it's a nicer softer version of that it's nice to always have that goodwill flushing about Mm -hmm. you know you you do people favors you help people out and they remember it particularly in a, a relatively small world like hospitality in the north of england Yeah, it pays back around and we've been doing that for nearly 25 years now and you you can't you can invest in that but you can't buy that you know that's a 25 year investment you can't suddenly rock up and have that weight of of goodwill weight of relationships it just doesn't come it just doesn't come overnight you know and uh and i think that almost is now the engine that powers NRB it is those relationships it is that that involvement in the region in the sector whether it's kind of really top level and strategic working with city councils or major property developers or whatever it is right down to really granular stuff you get little tiny startups who will message you through twitter and say listen i'm trying to do this business and i I can't find a site or whatever and you help them out yeah you help people out um i know it's a bit of a hackneyed thing now to kind of go on about the uh the, the new zealand the all blacks uh kind of motto of don't be a dick um but I think that does count for a lot, you know. The, as I say, the North is quite a tight world. We've been in hospitality in the North for 25 years, mm. and we try to do good. and And if you can keep that up for 25 years, you, you're going to do okay. You know, the North will look after you, and the industry will look after you.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's great advice. And and you know, when it happens, you know, with my business as well, where you you know someone you know you spoke to six years ago come up to you and say. I remember I met you after a speech and you gave me that bit of advice and this and that. I oh, would yeah. like to hire you now, type thing. And it's like, what? It's exactly yeah. that. Not really. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, thank goodness for past me, but well, you seem like a nice yeah. guy. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it works out quite well. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And then what sort of hours are you pulling and stuff then? Are you like, you watching after yourself, work-life balance, or is it just full throttle, non-stop, or how does it work?
1: No, no, we, we're good, you know. It's, it, it's funny, I look at the, the way the world has ended up now, post-COVID, um, and we kind of ended up there about... 10 or 11 years ago, mm. we we moved our office um, out of City Centre Manchester back in 2011 uh, to the, the small, damp, inbred mill town that's my hometown out in the Pennines on the edge of Manchester in the in the Peak District called Glossop. So we took a tiny little office because uh, our core team were all based out this way anyway. We're all kind of out into the Peak District or so certainly on this this side of Manchester. Um, and it was wonderful, really, because it, it meant – no one had a big commute into into town. Um, we could walk to work, which was lovely. Drop the kids at school on the way. Walk down to the office with the dog across a park. You know, it was it was unbelievable. Um, and we've always been really kind of flexible and supportive with the team. Most of us have got kids. We've all got you know complex lives, and we've we've always been very kind of relaxed, very flexible, very accommodating. I think because we all trust each other implicitly. If someone someone needs to be off because their kid's got a hospital appointment or whatever it might be. You just say, listen, no problem. Don't worry. Cause you know, when you need that, that time or that commitment back, they're going to do it for you. You know, you, you, and I, I appreciate that's easy to do when like us, you employ eight people or whatever, it would be different if you employ a thousand. I kind of fully understand that, but we just try and be really human. Um, and really flexible and really understanding no one's expected to do nine to five there's no prizes for being in first or or staying late we don't like people working evenings we don't like people working weekends we try very hard not to do it. Uh, And at the minute, most of our team are part-time or or working four day weeks and and have been for for quite a long time now. Um, I mean, events are events. When you get like we are now three weeks out to the sharp end of events, it it all gets a bit full on, you know, and we probably do have work in our head later than we should, or it, you know, we carry it through the weekend with us, but that's very much the exception, not the rule. You know, we, uh, we, we, as I say, most of the people in the company have got small children. And it's, it's so important um, that you're there for them. You don't get that time back. And, uh, yeah, we, we take work, life balance very, very seriously. And uh, I would I would go out of my way to tell people off if I thought they were, you know, working at night when they should be with their kids or whatever. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, that's good. You know, it's good to be that way. It's, um, it's so easy to just be on all the time, isn't it? You know, with everything that's going on. So, yeah, I completely understand. But the fact that you took that choice way back, you know, before it was popular. Um, you know, this yeah. is a great thing. You know, that was a real bit of foresight well, on your part.
1: I'll, well, it was. It was partly foresight. I think it's partly being brutally honest with you. It's all. It's also um, learning from your mistakes and making mm. sure that you only make mistakes once. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for us, we we had a pretty torrid um, financial crisis in 2008, mm. 2011. As you can imagine, the the exhibitions industry got decimated yeah. um things like the london motor show which had run for a 100 and odd years killed it stone dead it never came back again yeah. the entire exhibition industry collapsed by about half so that was a really tough time for us and before that not through not through greed just through probably naivety and and youthful enthusiasm we'd grown the company and grown the company we were doing well pulling in good money we kept reinvesting it we'd launch another exhibition take on more staff a bigger overhead you know you get a bigger office uh as i say not out of kind of greed or ego just because that's in the measure of success you know if you're good at it then you launch another show you take mm-hmm. on more people you launch another show and you keep going um and it was actually the the financial collapse in in 2011 uh or 2008 through till 2011 that, mm-hmm. that nearly took us down and it, we really had a kind of hard look at it each other in the business and we kind of thought well why why is that the measure is that the only measure mm. and i'm not saying it can't be you know to everyone who builds a business a restaurant with 200 outlets or whatever i mean phenomenal incredible mm. i am not capable of doing that and nor would i enjoy it and i think it's about understanding what you want and what you value And actually, we had two exhibitions. We had a kind of really tight core team. We had two exhibitions, an art fair and a a hospitality exhibition, which we were hugely passionate about. And we realized that focusing on those two things, rather than trying to empire build for the sake of it, and focusing on the quality of the events, but also on quality of life, was the thing that really mattered to us. And from 2011, we've been different people and we've run a different, business and Mm -hmm. it's not that it's not successful and it's not that it doesn't pay because you know it it does and that is important but it's it's manageable and we put all of our efforts into the the quality of the two things that we do and doing them brilliantly rather than going we're doing two things well why don't we do 10 or 20 or 200 why don't we have an international office why don't we open wherever we've realized that for us personally that's not the yardstick of um, mm. success. If I get home, or my kids are too old now, but when I used to get home and pick the kids up from school or walk them to school in the morning and, and still had a great business that did things I was proud of and paid the bills and, you know, employed great people and made wonderful things happen, mm. that, for me, felt really like success, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's really interesting because you're doing it in the de schumann Hawksmoor way rather than the mm. large, you know, sort of multi... Multi site way, you know, where it's, you know, how yeah, yeah. how fast can we grow it? How big can we get? How can we get two in bath? How can we, you know, and it's just yeah. like actually, I think a lot of people were looking back when, when you know, COVID happened and all these things, where they're looking at the models like the Shum, bundle bus you know, mm-hmm. that they're just steady as they go. They know what they're capable of. And it's not about rapid growth, it's about doing the best you possibly can, you know, yeah. one thing at a time, you know. And even if it's capped, you know they've done really well. So Yeah. That makes I think total it's about
1: that, that pride. Yeah, it's about pride. You have to take pride in in everything that you do. And every time I mean we have lots of other kind of little strands to the business, the kind of arms and legs around NRB and around Manchester Art Fair, but they, they are the two motherships. And uh, every time we deliver one of those events, we we genuinely feel proud as a team. Mm-hmm. You know, we we absolutely at our core, feel proud of what we've delivered. We know that it's great. We know that people have enjoyed it. We know that it's worked for the people who are involved and the stakeholders and the people who have benefited from it. And, uh, you know, that's a wonderful thing. It helps you sleep soundly at night.
0: Yeah, which is yeah, not to be sniffed at. So in oh, terms of the NRB then, so talk us through mm. it. So it's where, what happens when you arrive, how do you get tickets to it, what's going on? Because I'm going up for the first time. In it as well, in a Wonderful. few weeks, I'm really excited about that. So, going up Excellent. with S uh, S P E resourcing Daniel, yeah, uh, S P E
1: Dan Cornwell yes. yeah, another fellow fellow Glossopian, yeah, yes, so yes,
0: so yes, yeah, yeah, he is uh, he is indeed. So, I'm really excited about that. And um, I'm staying at the Doghouse, I think. Oh yeah, 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 so yeah. So the, uh, uh, the new Doghouse dog place, place. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 So yeah, so go and Check that out. So yeah, be, be be a good trip.
1: So yeah, what about that? So, so I'll, I'll, I'll top and tail it with with the important thing, which is um, if if you're in the hospitality industry, then the tickets are free of charge. You can register at northernrestaurantandbar.co.uk. Um, that's all you need to do, just a, a short form there. Um, in, t- in terms of what you find when you get up here, uh, I think one of the nicest things about NRB without taking away the really kind of business critical stuff is that we're at Manchester central. That's the venue. It's the, the big exhibition venue that is right in the heart of the city. I sometimes, I sometimes feel a bit kind of gutted when I go to London shows and you have to get all the way out to Excel Mm. or all the way out to Olympia or whatever. Manchester Central is is right there, as the name suggests, in the, in the heart of the city. It's like being in, in uh, an exhibition venue, but you can step out into Soho or Mayfair, basically. Um, so you're surrounded by all the best restaurants, all the best bars. So you can kind of enjoy the city as well as enjoying coming to NRB. And if you're in the world of hospitality and food and drink, to be able to do those two things together, to be able to walk out and go to Hawksmoor or to Shume, within a couple of minutes, walk or end up in Schofield's Bar is a, is a big part of it. It almost makes it like a study trip as much as a, a day out at, uh, at an exhibition. Um, the exhibition itself, if, if anyone has been to another trade exhibition down in um, London or wherever, they'll understand the general format. It's a big old hall. We have about 300 suppliers to the industry, absolutely everything that you would need to run, equip, refurb, improve, launch uh, a hospitality business. Um, there's a selection of theatres within there. We have about 50 different talks, demos, tastings from big name chefs, kind of world cocktail authorities, uh, experts on wine, experts on craft ales, absolutely everything. So we've got a chef theatre with, I think this year, the most we've ever had, seven star chefs are in the theatre. Um, this time around, especially including, sorry, two that we picked out before they were awarded their Michelin star, We kind of had a little talent spotting eye on them before they got the uh, the big gong from Michelin. We have a fine food area. We have an area for all the bartenders and the premium spirits with a, a kind of drinks live theater with lots of tutored tastings. We have a, an area for wine tasting and, and craft sale tasting as well. So lots going on there. Um, The night before we have a big charity dinner, we're doing it with a local Manchester charity called Eat Well this year, who kind of helped feed people who are in poverty around the city. They do a lot of work with chefs in the hospitality industry. Um, And then on site at the show, we have the NRB Top 50 which is an awards that we run for the kind of fifty most important and influential operators in the in the north of England. So it's quite a power list. Um, we also have a, a paid for kind of mini conference, really, where we're having a pa- a panel on a on a really topical important issue, which is about kind of diversity and representation, particularly as as we go up the career ladder in hospitality, why that tends to fall away and and, and why it's not good enough that that happens and, and why there is a benefit to sorting that out, why it needs to be sorted out. Um, and also today, so hot off the press, we've announced that our, our headliner for the NRB debate is Nick Jones, the yeah. founder and chief exec of um, Soho House, who is, an incredible operator. I mean, a globally significant operator. He doesn't do a lot of press. You're not going to see him at every event to, to get a chance to hear from this guy about his thoughts on the art of hospitality, the business of hospitality, the fact that he is opening a Soho house in Manchester. And the story about why Manchester, why the North, and why now—I mm. um, think that's going to be absolutely fantastic. We're expecting um, a sellout for that. That should be absolutely wonderful. Can, can you just um, ask
0: I, him? Can you just ask him to finish Brighton first?
1: I'll make that Because it's half built and I'm just like, come on, (laughs) sort that out. I'll I'll give him a little nudge in the ribs on your behalf, Mark, definitely. (laughs) Uh, And then we have two other elements. We do something called NRB Future, which is a kind of entrepreneur engagement event. It's about identifying the the, the kind of up and coming emerging talent, young operators, emerging operators, putting them in the room with the sorts of professional experts and consultants who they're going to need to help to grow and scale their business, whether it's finance, whether it's legal. Legal and licensing, whether it's recruitment, you know, whatever that might be, put them in a room with the representatives, just to open their eyes as to how the kind of how the industry works, how some people scale and grow, and and why it doesn't happen for everyone. You know, you need to know these these people. Um, and then we have a new element this year called the NRB Safari, uh, and that's effectively that is a formal study tour where we're looking to take. Uh, a set, a cohort, really, of operators from London and the south of England who are maybe interested in Manchester because they like what's going on there. They want to understand the talent and the scene better. Maybe they're looking at opening their own venues up north or in Manchester and they want to get under the skin of the city and get a feel for the different neighbourhoods, the audience, the market, the dynamics. So we're going to take them on a whistle-stop tour around all the all the most important venues in the city, introduce them to some of the operators, have some little Q&A sessions. Um, And it's the first time that we've done that. And I think that would re- be really, really exciting. So as well as getting kind of 8,000 people plus through the door to the exhibition itself, we also have a very tight relationship with those really kind of big beast operators, the high profile operators through the NRB top 50. We have an arm around the shoulder of the the young talent trying to kind of welcome in that next cohort of operators who are trying to break into the industry. And then we're also holding out our hands to people from outside the north and saying, listen, if you want to get to know the north, get to know Manchester, get to know the hospitality sector up here, you know, we'll help you. We'll help you. Yeah. We'll, buy you a beer, you know, come up and uh, have a chat with everyone. We'll make some introductions. So it's nice. It feels like a really kind of joined up holistic approach really to, to, to making a whole of the the hospitality industry, particularly in the North kind of come together. And I I think after the last two years, for the love of God, we, we all need that sense of getting in a room together and, you know, catching up just really that intangible buzz, that connectivity, the ideas, the inspiration that only really comes from actually standing in a room with someone having a chat, having a coffee, grabbing a beer. Yeah. No, I'm
0: super excited about it and uh, is the Nick Jones tickets almost sold out? How is it good? Uh,
1: they, they've only gone on sale today. Okay. And it's already, we, we tracked the stats on it. It's our fastest selling debate that we've uh, that we've ever done. And we've had some fantastic names. Yeah. We've had Jay Rayner. We've had Fred Syriacs. We've had Jason Atherton. We've had Gary Neville. We've had some really big names. But yeah, Nick seems to have caught everyone's imagination, yeah. which is um, fantastic because it's nice to feel after two years out that we're going to be kind of back with a bang. Rather, yeah. rather than having taken a backward kind of step, we're actually, uh, you know, we're coming back stronger and bigger than ever. Yeah,
0: no, I need to uh, I need to get my ticket for that because I'd be interested to hear as well. So just thinking about um, people then, you know, we've got a big crisis and, you know, you talked about the industry coming together mm. and it is the industry coming together that's going to solve that. So what are you seeing from the people problems that we've got and what are you hearing, you know, from either candidates or businesses? You know, what, what's going on in the north as far as you can see with people? Well the,
1: the, the north is um suffering just like you guys are down in brighton just like london is as well we're we're all dealing with the same problems and i I think it's important for context to make clear that although brexit and and covid have both exacerbated this problem it's not a new problem you know i've been in this industry for about a quarter century now and people used to complain about it when i was first in the industry uh and then i remember when there was that real kind of explosion of restaurants and bars and all the casual dining guys and the number of venues was just kind of mushrooming, you know, a small town that might have had three restaurants suddenly had like 20 restaurants and bars. And I remember the whole industry going, how can we keep up with this? You know, where are these people going to come from? The catering colleges weren't pumping these people out fast enough. And it's felt like an existential question for a very, very long time. And I don't think we've ever got to grips with it and it's got worse and worse and worse. Um, I think there's different layers to it. And I I know you and I have, have touched on this before I think we need to look at the, the environments we create, the working environments that we create for the people who are in the industry. We need to look at the kind of career progression that we, we offer these people to keep them. A lot of it is about retainment, um, and progression. And I think individual, um, operators are getting much, much better at that yeah. there are still exceptions we you know we all know that but there's some fantastic operators there who look after their staff so well and really give them an environment and a, a as i say a progression where they they want to stay long term and that's wonderful but i still think the biggest issue is is the raw material of just getting people into this industry in the first place yeah. um and that's sometimes forgotten i'm not saying that it's not important to think about how we retain people and upskill people and move them up the corporate ladder that's vital but for the love of god someone has to take responsibility for finding not hundreds of thousands but tens and hundreds of thousands of new people to come into this industry in the first place yeah. because there is a shortage and, and that gap does need filling um and that's something that hopefully hospitality rising can can address um, and i i think it needs to be addressed and i i think a large part of it is optics. It's it's about people's view of the industry. And I think a lot of those views and opinions are misplaced, which is frustrating. But that also surely is the opportunity that there's a better and different story to be told and that we can change that narrative. Yeah. The industry is better, much better than many people who are considering their jobs or careers or whatever actually appreciate at the minute. Yeah. We just need to tell them that.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying. I mean, funnily enough, um, we didn't plan this, but just exactly with what you're saying, I've just had an email through saying the main reasons and the main perceptions about hospitality and why people aren't joining. Um, mm-hmm. And it really doesn't make good reading. So 45% of people saying the hours are antisocial. 44% mm-hmm. of people saying it's the hours are long. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some of the other ones... It's really sad to see as well. Only eighteen percent of people would say it's a fun industry to work in.
1: See that I just find
0: crazy, right? Inexplicable, yeah. Inexplicable, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's a, some accusations you could maybe level at hospitality, but not being fun. Isn't one of them? Yeah, you know, I, I don't. I don't know where I know very few people who work in hospitality or who did in their younger years or cut their teeth in hospitality who didn't really like it, mm. really enjoy it. My my eldest son is um, is working in the the local pub at the minute, and he enjoys it. You know, if if you like people yeah if you, you know it's great fun he he comes back he comes back you know full of uh, stories and chat every time he comes back from a shift you know he's had the most stimulating time he gets a huge kick out of it
0: yeah definitely and then just some sad ones here as well like uh inclusive and diverse you know as low as you can imagine but 16% um and then as an innovative industry 7% so we've got a lot of work to do on, on that score, you know, it's, it's going to be tough.
1: It, it will, but as, as I say, I, I feel strongly, and I, I know you feel the same, that the the battle is there to be won. Mm. Um, you know, I think if we were all looking at ourselves going, do you know what, we are... A, a no fun, no innovation industry. We'd would probably be quite worried about how the hell we were going to convince hundreds of thousands yeah. of people to take it up as a career option. But the fact is that 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 just isn't true. That's yeah. demonstrably not true. Can the hours be antisocial? Well, you are going to often work when other people, civilians, and inverted commas want to go out and have yeah. a have a good time. I don't think that can be avoided. But I think what we what we can puncture is the is the myths. The one that I can't even believe is true, but that people think it's not fun. It is that they think it's not innovative or creative. It absolutely is. Um, And I think there's other myths out there as well. People think that it's a low-pay industry. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I look at some of the people who've gone into hospitality young, and by the time they're in their mid-20s and they're kind of running a restaurant or running a bar or whatever Mm – they're on good money. Yeah. The idea that there's not career progression, I think is is changing. I think everyone is taking that much more seriously now and, mm. and they're they're thinking about skills and, and, and training and promotion and all the rest of it. Yeah. I think I think there's a lot of good to be said about this industry. Yeah. And um, you know, someone needs to get it by the scruff of the neck and and tell those stories. And I think one of the things that's hamstrung us in the past, it's one of the things that makes this industry so exciting and innovative is, is that it is still predominantly independence. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at, you look at other sectors and then professional services or retail or whatever, and it's mainly big companies and they have the time the headspace, the people resource to think very strategically and, and very kind of cohesively about this sort of problem. And, you know, they have lots of industry panels and organisations because they've all got time to take an hour out of their day to go and sit in a meeting or whatever it might be. Yeah. We, are, we are largely... Uh, an industry of independence you know we're all small businesses we're all fighting hard we're all tightly resourced there's always a problem because the chef hasn't turned up or a supplier's let you down or water's coming through the roof or whatever it might be and that can sometimes make it a bit head down tunnel vision and and it's been hard to kind of unify all of those people all of those tens of thousands of individual bars and restaurateurs and these tiny operators and and get them thinking as as one Mm -hmm. um and i i think the the kind of um The coming together of a lot of industry bodies to create UK hospitality has has been really helpful. And I think what Kate Nichols has has done there has been fantastic. But I think as a a kind of marketing campaign as well, I, I think what you're doing with Hospitality Rising and hopefully dovetail with that. And, yeah. you know, we can really get out there and, and shout about it. And I'm sure you can do it in a, in a kind of slicker, more creative and, and cooler way than, than I could. I'm sure you've got a, a wonderful campaign, but that's what needs to be done. Yeah. Someone really needs to sell this. Um, and, you know. I can sell if you give me a phone and 80 calls a day, but I'm not going to be able to convince the world at large <laughs> to take hospitality on as a, as a career. Though no, I did convince my son to do it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that falls to you, Mark. We'll all get involved and we'll all support you and back you to the hill, but you can, you're going to have to lead the charge. Yeah.
0: Thing. Oh, that's the easy bit. Uh, the, the hard bit's getting everyone to come together and getting the money. And, and it is quite incredible that you've got people, it's almost like going to the doctor's and a doctor saying, here's here's the pills, take the pills, and then they don't take them to get better. So yeah. I'm finding it astonishing where, you know, we're in conversations every single day where it's like, you know, once you've got to a certain, you know, once you've got to one million, then we'll put in. And it's like, well, we need you to Put it now. It you know? Um yeah. or you know, the big guys going, We need more of the big guys to to sign up and you're like, But you are the big so we need you to go first yeah. and then, you know. Yeah. So, um and it really, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, it's gonna be the big companies that, that make this work or not. You know, we're not yeah. gonna reach our target by, you know, lots of small independent pubs before staff, although they're they're an important part <laughs> of it, you know
1: yeah funnily enough, there are there are some parallels there to when we set up um, the art fair, when we set mm-hmm. up Manchester art fair. There, there's two real parallels. the The first is that not that many people buy art. There's lots of people who could and should buy art, but not that many people buy art. And I was astounded in the when I kind of looked into the art world from the outside, because I, I had no professional or academic background in the arts at all, that there was this kind of world of galleries who all fought like cats in the bag over over a tiny audience of art buyers, but none of them really showed any interest in growing that audience of art buyers. Yeah, They all just wanted to jump on the art buyers that were there. And it's like my my background, maybe it's you know, doing a science degree, but I was quite analytical. I was like, well, that's interesting. These people buy art. Can we find more people like those? Yeah. And what were the pathways that made those people buy art? And can we open up those pathways and bring in 10 times as many art buyers? And no one really seemed to be interested in that. So we as an art fair almost had to take on this this mantle of saying, well, we'll we'll grow our own audience. We'll build our own audience of people who've never been to a gallery before, never bought a piece of art before, and we will, we will kind of handhold them and take them along this process and turn them into art buyers. And that's what we've done. And the other thing that just struck me with what you were saying is in in the early days, because we were from outside the art world, no one wanted to hear about how well we were gonna organize an exhibition or how good our marketing campaign was or yeah. ROI or anything like that. They were all kind of just looking at us going, but who Who are you? You know, yeah. you're, you're no one in the art world. And in the end, we'd try, we We've been trying to sell it for about seven months. And I think we had like three galleries signed up. And in the end, I had to get all the local Northwest galleries in a room together and say, look, you won't do it because she hasn't signed up. She won't sign up because they're not on board. Yeah. They're not on board because he won't say yes can we not just all agree that if we all got involved with this and we all created a bigger, richer pool of art-buying people in the north of England, then we'd all benefit. Yeah. Good for the art buyers, good for the galleries, good for us as an art fair organiser. Yeah. And we just about broke that logjam. But I literally had to get everyone in a room. <laughs> And finger like, pointy way yeah, yeah. that this is crazy. Not you, you all can't individually sit on the sidelines waiting for someone else to solve the problem. You mm. know, it, all these galleries had to just agree to get on board together on mass because it only really worked with critical mass. It, yeah. it, you know, there's a minimum viable product as the phrase is it just won't work below a certain size yeah um but that but that was kind of 14 15 years ago and everyone said you'll never sell art in manchester and we sold over five million pounds of the contemporary art into the, the city in the wider north so nice. you can prove people wrong but sometimes you you do need to just break that initial log
0: yeah i think we were, we were looking at having a sort of fence sitters webinar you know where we'd you know, just say to everyone, right, if you're on the fence, come to this and we'll, we'll convince you, you know, so, I think that's um, exactly what you need. yeah, so that'll be a, that'll be a tricky one, right, well, I better let you go soon, because you've got stuff to do, um, but there was a couple of quick questions I was just going to ask you, as a wee bit of, of fun, so, we call it Mark out a 10, and mm-hmm. it's just some favourite things, really, just as a bit of light relief at the end, so, Best. Oh God, I know what you're going to say here, right? Best city to eat in. <laughs> That's a trick
1: question, isn't it, Mark? Hey, you're, you're toying with me there. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to give a slightly more nuanced um, answer as a as a proud northerner. I could never quite admit that London was the greatest city in the world to eat in. <laughs> and um, back in the late 90s, um, we started going to New York a lot. Mm. We, we used to go over to New York every every year and eat there. We used to go to all Danny Mayer's places yep. back in the day. Also the fine dining places, Daniel Ballou and Jean-Georges Vongerichten and and Nobu. But we also used to go to all the street food places, Papaya King for Hot King or uh, for Hot Dogs and Katz's Deli and all the noodle places down on Canal Street. Uh, I had as a Gat Guide, there was almost, no internet there you used to get your little papers as a gap guide and you had to book everywhere when the booking lines opened three months in advance and that to me I remember it to this day going around New York feeling like you're in a film set eating in these like unbelievable unbelievable restaurants particularly Gramercy Tavern was our favorite yeah. one of Danny Mayer's places that sticks with me I mean that really shaped me uh, New York as a city to to eat in absolutely oh. blew me away but that said we both know it's Manchester
0: <laughs> and there's a Canal Street there too. Well, I'm um, I'm I'm heading over to New York soon, uh, and I'm going to be doing a podcast with Mark Maynard, who is uh, oh, one wonderful. of Danny's guys. Um, so yeah. he's like second, you know, one of the director type things. So yeah, yeah so we're, yeah, we're yeah. going to do a podcast while I'm out there. So I'm really excited about that. So and hopefully Exciting. get to see Hawksmoor when we're out as yes. well. So yeah, we'll yeah. hopefully get to see that. Looks brilliant. Oh, it does. It doesn't half. Yeah. Um, all right. So best restaurant.
1: So it's not here anymore. Am mm, I allowed to say it's not? Of course. Yeah, yeah, do it. Yeah, does it count? So there was um when we were much younger, we we got it into our heads that we wanted to eat at a Michelin star restaurant and uh you know, let's let's not open the kind of worms about Manchester not having one, but there mm. there weren't no Michelin star restaurants in uh, Manchester. But my dad used to be in the antique trade and he told me about Ludlow, which is this little mm-hmm. tiny Town, tiny town, about 9,000 people out in the Welsh marches out in Shropshire. And at the time, it had three Michelin star restaurants. And they all did set menus, which were about 20 quid ahead, 25 quid ahead. Um, there was uh, Mr. Underhill's, there was Hibiscus, which mm-hmm. eventually moved to London and got two Michelin stars and the Claude Bossy. Who wrote, you know, or was it Claude Bossy? Club, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and and there was the Merchant House, which was uh, run by a chef called uh, Sean Hill, who's now got the walnut tree in Abergavenny. And the the the, uh, the, um, the Merchant House was the one that just absolutely blew us away. It was a tiny little restaurant. It's about 20 covers. Uh, Sean was in the kitchen. Anya, his wife, was front of the house. And that was pretty much... It for their team. Um, and the kitchen was tiny. It was like the size of an ensuite. It had four burners and an oven and a blender, and, and that, was, that was pretty much it. And he he just did the most classical, elegant, memorable, delicious, technically precise cooking I've ever eaten in my life. And it absolutely blew me away. The fact that every single thing that you were eating had been prepared by the hands of a guy who was a Michelin star chef who'd worked in all the great places, Gidley mm-hmm. Park, places in London, everywhere. And there he was, in a in a kitchen, you know, really smaller than a domestic kitchen, just it was like he was cooking dinner for you. And it was mind blowing. And it was 20 odd quid. And um, we must have eaten there four or five times. When our first son was born, we took him down there in a carry cot under the table and had a kind of uh, indulgent Michelin star lunch, frantically rocking him. Hoping that he wouldn't wake up. Lovely. But I, I would say that was probably the meal that turned me into the napkin sniffing restaurant geek that I am today. <laughs> so for me, I I still miss the merchant house. It was a wonderful, magical place. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And what about best dish
0: or meal? What's the like what's your, your go to? I was thinking
1: about this and I know what my what my restaurant meal is. It's Friday night curry. Okay, Friday night takeaway curry, family Uh curry. Um, I know this sounds ridiculous but when I was growing up I wouldn't eat, I would hardly eat any food at all when I was a kid like I had to be taken to clinics for being underweight and not eating I just didn't really like anything and then I was convinced that I didn't like spicy food or, or curry and it wasn't until I went to university that I actually ate curry for the first time mm-hmm. and then when I moved back to Manchester we lived just near Russia mm-hmm. which is Manchester's famous curry mile uh, which was just a, a hotbed of, of restaurants from all over kind of Southeast Asia and, and in, in India, Pakistan everywhere and We started getting Friday night curry. I I decided that I liked curry by that point. And Friday night curry became a thing, like it was totemic. You were not allowed to mess with Friday night curry. Friday night curry must happen on pain of death. It has to. And everywhere we've lived since, we've kept the tradition going as we move to different areas and then eventually to the city center and then back to Glossop. We've always found a local curry house for Friday night curry. And now my kids are 18 and 15, my two boys and they're like incandescent. If for any reason we don't have Friday night curry, they're inconsolable. Mm. They're absolutely heartbroken. So it's a really important family meal. And I start salivating about it when I wake up on Friday morning, I'm excited. I'm excited about Friday night curry. There's something about ending the week, sitting down with your family and having a curry, I don't know, it's just, a meal is not just about the food, it's about the occasion, isn't it? To me, that's probably the best occasion of the week, every week.
0: Nice, and is there a favourite curry you're having? The favourite
1: dish within? (laughs) I I, I swap about, it depends, it depends on... um, it depends on which curry house. Each curry house has had its kind of best dish. Wow. Um, at the minute, I, I go to a, a tiny little place in in Hadfield called the Rajni, and they, they do a very good chicken gel and a very good sag paneer. So I tend to alternate between those two. They're my two go-to dishes at the minute.
0: Very good. Uh, uh, best alcoholic drink? I'm assuming you drink alcohol. <laughs> White
1: Burgundy. Uh-huh. Cool name Montruchet. If you want to spoil me, then that's what to get me, Mark. Yeah, I'm I'm a fanatical addict. I know almost nothing. I'm in the foothills of wine knowledge. I'm floundering about like an idiot. But the more I learn, the more I love. And the more I love, the more I learn. And everyone has their own particular kind of bit of wine geekery that they get into. And for me, it's, uh, it's those kind of fine, elegant white burgundies. So I just absolutely adore them. That would be my desert island drink every time. And what was the name of it? Uh, Poulinier Montreuil. Okay. okay, that's the that's the daddy. That's I'll, the one you want.
0: I'll listen back and and translate that <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: for the for the notes. My,
1: <laughs> yeah, my French accent is probably terrible. There's probably a much better <laughs> way of, um, of pronouncing it, but there you go.
0: And then, Ed, yeah, just thinking if we put all that together, you know, who would you be taking out for for that special meal? So dead or alive, celeb or someone, you know.
1: Yeah. Now. I was thinking about this as well. I, I was struggling with which way to go on uh, to answer this. To be honest, um, Mark, I, I, I don't want to put this whole thing on a on a downer. But my my little brother died of cancer about three years ago, mm-hmm. and it, if I could have a meal with anyone, then it would be Matt, obviously every yeah. time. But that's um, that's a, a slightly downbeat note to um, to end on. So taking that out of the equation, there is actually a better answer. I think one of the things that I value most having family, having kids, having a dog who's really needy and wants to sit on your knee all the time, (laughs) running events for a living, being in the restaurant industry, everywhere you go, you know people and all the rest of it. One of the things I love the most is actually my own company. Uh I think I'd have no one. I don't want to sound like a misanthropic, miserable (laughs) ass, but for a long time now, it's been an absolute luxury. When I've got time in my little calendar in my diary, or even meeting councils, which is sometimes the most wonderful thing in the world. Yeah. And you can go and have lunch on your own, ideally with a newspaper or a good book, but just on your own. People watch, maybe chat to the waiter or the waitress, something like that. Oh, it's a luxury. You know, it happens so rarely. And yeah. it is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And some of my best meals have actually been just my own company, a little bit of headspace and a little bit of time. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's quite important for your – um. For your mental health, for your personal balance, really, just to take those little gaps out of your day when when everything else is so social and people based to have, you know, it's like getting into a sensory deprivation tank or something, but it's almost like social deprivation. Just an hour or two of it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So I know it's a really contrary answer. But I would have no one, and I would just be on my own with a newspaper, and I'd be happy as Larry. <laughs> I really would. <laughs> you just decompress, decompress. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> decompress. Let everything percolate. All those thoughts, all those worries, just let them, let them kind of trickle, trickle away, and sort themselves out. While you have a very nice meal and a glass of in Nantrey.
0: Nice. And then just finally, what's twenty twenty two holding for you then? Because I know you're not one for looking back, and you're always wanting to look forward. Never. So, what what are you thinking? what you're manifesting
1: well I, I'm relentlessly polyanish you know I don't think any of us would run our own businesses if we weren't just eternal glass half full sort of optimists, yeah. so having been through this brutal, brutal two years, um, I actually feel massively. I feel massively optimistic. You know, we can all see the headwinds as the cliches. We can mm. all see the challenges that the industry is uh, is facing. But I actually think the next kind of turn of the cycle, the next three to five years, are going to be incredibly exciting. There is so much opportunity out there. There is so much potential. There are so many new ideas, new technologies, new concepts, new people with new passion, new talent, all flooding into the industry. Um, and, you know, I, I get a bit of a thrill out of it, really. You know, it puts a spring in you step when you when you go back to work to think that i don't know quite what i'm going to be doing in six months or 18 months or you know what new elements we're going to bolt onto nrb or who we're going to be working with i don't know who the chefs are going to be in the theater in a year's time because some of them are probably not even broken through yet but i'm really excited to find out um so yeah i feel i feel um remarkably resiliently upbeat and i think for those guys who've hung on in there through the last two years and for those guys who are just moving into the industry now it's going to be a really good fun time and we're all going to do some great things
0: nice and then just a final reminder when is the nrb on and uh, how do you get your tickets
1: Uh, nrb is at manchester central in manchester on the uh, 15th and 16th of march that's a tuesday and a wednesday Uh, and just go to the website it's northernrestaurantandbar.co.uk get yourself registered get yourself to Manchester and then go and have a cocktail in Schofields you'll be happy nice all
0: right it's been a real pleasure Tom so thanks so much for giving me the time and uh, and, and sharing uh, everything about NRB and also your life with us as well it's been super interesting to get to know you and um, yeah we'll catch up up in Manchester soon it's been a pleasure thanks for having me Mark cheers So there you have it, I only spend time with Tom on Twitter and I wish I spent much more time with him chatting in real life or at the very least over a Zoom call. Thanks so much to Tom for taking the time to talk to me today and I really hope that the Northern Restaurant and Bar Show goes with a bang. Thanks so much to you for listening and hopefully it's a bit of a surprise having a bonus episode and I really hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks so much to our sponsors, StoreKit and Saved by Robots. You've been real champions of the show from day one of this series. I really appreciate your help, support, guidance and everything you do for us. Massive thanks to Gaz and Gabby for putting the show together at short notice. I really appreciate it. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Bless you. Thanks for listening. And I hope that this episode has brought you value, insight and the information that you need to help your brand boom.